Therefore now there is no condemnation. None. No condemning at all by God. Fail all you want. God will not condemn you for it. Now that's not a free pass. We know we have a Father who loves us, who doesn't want us to live in defeat and failure and sin. Doesn't want that. But when we do, there is therefore now no condemnation. None. Why is that important? Because the enemy would tell us when we fail that we'll never succeed. He would get us down in the mully grubs, if you will, and cause us just to give up as believers. What's the use of it all? I keep falling the same sin all the time. The only way to begin the process of Romans 8 and see the fullness of the Spirit is to stop condemning yourselves for failures of the past or weaknesses that you have. Only in that basis that you know God does not now, in this present moment, condemn you. That's the way you get up. That's the way you learn to walk in the Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation. Period. Exclamation point. End of topic. Now I'm going to teach you something, so listen very carefully. In the King James Version, at the end of verse 1 is a phrase that is missing from the later translations of the ESV, the NIV, and most newer translations. Let me tell you why that's missing. Uh, if, if you have a King James, you will see at the end of that verse this phrase. For those who walk according to the flesh, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Is that basically what you see at the end of the King James there? Okay. It is very likely that that particular phrase at the end of verse 1 was not in the original autograph. Let me tell you why. When the King James was translated, the men did an incredible job of the manuscripts that they had. They take the earliest possible manuscripts and translated, and in the earliest possible, in the 1500s, 1600s, this is the phrase that was there at the end of chapter one, verse 1. It was there. Since the King James have been translated a couple hundred years ago, earlier manuscripts were discovered. Now, when you have an earlier copy of the original, and you have a series of earlier comp copies from that original that are earlier than what the King James the ones that are to be trusted are the earlier ones. You see? The closer you get to the original autograph, the more accurate you will have. Now what happened in verse 1? Probably a scribal error. Probably those who were copying the text looked at the end of chapter 8, verse 4. Look at it. You see chapter 8, verse 4. Do you see pretty much the same phrase? What probably happened one night is that one scribe was writing. He rubbed his eyes. He was tired. He needed to go to bed. But he said, I'm going to do a couple more verses. And looking over, he saw verse 4 and finished it in verse 1. Now, when he did that, there was a chain reaction down through. Everybody that copied him copied that. I say that's important because of this. If you attach that phrase to the end of verse 1 of chapter 8, it looks as though the condemnation is hooked to your walk. Like there's no condemnation if you're walking to the Spirit. But man, if you're walking to the flesh, there's some condemnation there. 
and there is not. Nothing is reliant upon our walk in terms of God's viewpoint toward us. So, King James only folks would get up and walk out at this point. I want you to know that. And I love the King James. It's a beautiful translation. But you need to accurately understand because Christians down through the centuries have condemned themselves because of that verse and interpreting. And some of you have too, I know. So, at the end of verse 1, should accurately, as we have in the ESV, end with, for those that are in Christ Jesus. The fact that you have no condemnation is the fact that you're in Christ Jesus. God placed you there, you're in there, you can't get out of there, and because you're in there, no condemnation from God. And if He doesn't condemn you, stop doing it to yourself. Stop it. You won't grow in that way. Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life. Now remember last week we talked about when you see the word law, it doesn't always mean the Ten Commandments or a biblical principle. It means a universal thing that's true everywhere, like the law of gravity. That's the term used here. So Paul says this, For the law of the spirit of life, the principle that is always true for all of us, everywhere, every time, no matter what sin comes to pass or tempts you. That's what a law is. It works for Ed as much as it works for me. It works for Tony as much as it works for John. This law of the spirit of life, the spirit of life is in all of us, And there is no sin that you could face, no temptation you can face that can violate that or that that particular law cannot overcome. And it's as true in me as it's true in you. So the law of the spirit of life, watch this, has set you free. Notice the past tense. People pray for deliverance. They pray for freedom. He has set you free. In Christ, notice, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the universal law of sin and death. Now, this is where we get messed up, and I want you to think clearly with me. This is not the law of counteraction. This is not a big seesaw or teeter-totter, I should say, where somebody sits on the end, okay, And some bigger guy gets on the other end and, you know, you just fly off into the blue. This is not the spirit of life being stronger than the spirit, than the law of sin and death. Encounteracting it. John, come on up here. John, come on up here. Let me show you how this works. Because it's important for you to see this. By the way, there's a law of gravity. And uh, what would supersede or overcome the law of gravity? What's another law that If you're flying, what's that law called? Aerodynamics. Okay, so you got, and and you better hope as the plane goes up that the law of aerodynamics at that point is greater than the law of gravity. In fact, the whole time up there, you better hope it sustains itself because if it doesn't, you're in big trouble, okay? So this is how it works. Let's make John the law of sin and death because I can, and I'll be the law of the spirit of life. Come on, John, let's see what you got. 
Oh, yeah. Come on, buddy. Come on. Let's see what you got. Let's see what you got. Let's see what you got. Okay? Now, we're not playing here. This is for real, okay? All right, ready? Count it down. One, two, three. Don't laugh, man. I'm just holding it. I'm playing with you. See, I can... Oh, say can we see by the dawns. I just finish you off, whatever. Okay, John, don't go anywhere, man. I've humiliated you. I'm going to do it twice. All right, let's say John pumps a lot of, this is because this is the way a lot of folks look at their Christian life. Let's say John does a lot of um, calisthenics. He does a lot of push-ups. I mean, he works, he's, he's okay, the, the bully kicks sand in his face. So he comes back in two months. I mean, he's buffed. I mean, he's just, he's bulgy. He said, come, come on, come on, come here. So he's stronger now. Oh, I see. It's hurting from the tennis, aren't you? Okay, yeah. All right, one, two, three. Oh, man, he's killing me. Oh, you like that. Okay, Tracy, yeah. Thank you, John. Yeah. He's a uh, young father of a newborn, and he's sleeping out there, and I'm, I'm jacking him up for that, see? I, just, I don't care if he got three hours sleep last night. I'll sleep during my sermons, okay. So, um, so this is how Christians look at the Christian life. If I pray, if I read my Bible, if I'm faithful, I get stronger and stronger and stronger. And all of a sudden, the spirit of life is stronger in me than the law of sin and death. It's a counteraction thing like a teeter-totter. I just got to get bigger and heavier, so when I sit down, it goes. That's not what the verse says. The verse says that the spirit of life into me has set me free. So, John, one more time. Come on up here. One more time. Come on up here. This is how it works. As I get in here and oppose to, to do, I should have had Ed come up here and arm wrestling right there. Get into a, a pose of arm wrestling. This is what it looks like. John's the, John's the law of sin and death. I reckon myself to be dead. I reckon myself to be alive in Christ. I'm counting on the life. So here comes sin and death, and he wants, I'm free. See? I'm free. I don't even engage in the struggle of it any. Because when I engage in the struggle, I'm going to lose every... John, you're good. Thank you. All right. Fall asleep again, I'll pull you up one more time, all right? We are free. The minute you struggle against sin, you will lose. The minute you try to repress anger, you have lost at the outset. When you see yourself free from that temptation and that temptation calls, you don't, even, you don't even respond to it. You reckon yourself to have the spirit of life inside of you. That's the freedom. That's the freedom. Okay, so let's go on. Everybody got it down so we're not, because I'm telling you, I, I've read good authors, good authors, who talk about counterbalance and how the spirit of God trumps, the spirit of life trumps, the spirit of sin and death. Oh, no, 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 no. It's, it's greater than that. We are free from that law. Has set us free. So let's go on. For God has done what the law, <laughs> weakened by the flesh, could not do. For God, I love that. I mean, if you want to put that in little quotation marks and let that be the emblem for your Christian life and the slogan, get some t-shirts made up, for God has done. There it is. He's finished. 
what God has done, what the law, because I'm so weak, could never do for me. No, no list of things to do could ever pull it off. No effort on our part. God has already done what the law, what any kind of list man gives you, could never do. Never. And yet Christians spend their entire lives trying to be good Christians. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How did he do it? By sending his own son. Now I'm going to let that sink in. Uh, There wasn't an argument in heaven where Jesus kind of said, you know, I I know you don't want me to go, but I'm going to go. God the Father loved you so much. He wanted to not only wipe out the guilt of your sins by his blood, but he's willing to sacrifice the body of his son to deliver us from the power of sin. God sending his own son. Now, if he paid that ultimate price of sending his son, do you see why any struggle is really sin? Do you see if he has made that ultimate sacrifice, not to walk in that victory that he sacrificed so much for? Are you beginning to see the horror of that? Notice in verse 3, for God, it says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not in sinful flesh, but in its likeness. A body like ours, temptations like ours, and yet not sinful flesh in the likeness, notice, and for sin. For sin's sacrifice for the lamb. Because sin requires a sacrifice. Notice what he did in sending him. This is different than the blood that was shed. We're beyond the blood that was shed in the book of Romans. The blood that was shed washed away all our sins. For most Christians, that's all they really know. This is deeper theology. This is is food for the soul. Notice what he did. He condemned sin in the flesh. Not his flesh, your flesh. Because there was no sin in his flesh. What he did in dying for us his body broken, he took the sin principle in us, not sins, the sin principle, the flesh in us, and condemned it in our body. Now that's incredibly important. Let me tell you why. Because I'm taking my body to heaven. Well, I'm going to get a new body. It'll be transformed. But when we show up in heaven, there's no disembodied spirits up there. You're not going to float around like a thought. You're going to have a body. Not only that, the only way that God could ever use your body, use your mouth, use your hands, because it says glorify God in your body, is to have condemned sin in your body and have it under the the judgment of God. Therefore, having it under judgment of God, now He can use your body. Now your body is good. Your body is profitable. Now it's neutral. You can use it for sin. But the same mouth that curses can share the love of Jesus Christ now because he has condemned sin in the physical body, condemning it. Notice, let's read on. So he condemns sin in the flesh in order, this is his purpose, this is the outplay of it, in order that the righteous requirement of the law, 
The King James says that the righteousness of the law, notice, might be fulfilled in us. Notice he did not say that the law could be fulfilled in us. He said the righteous requirements of the law. Now what did he mean? In our minds, the law says thou shalt not covet. Well, in my mind, if I never steal anything from you, I probably haven't coveted. But that's not what the law means. The law means it's a spiritual thing, though in my heart, if I covet, then I have already coveted. Jesus said it himself. If you hate a man without a cause, you've already murdered him in your heart. So when the Spirit of God comes within a human being, the victory is such that they not only not murder, they do not hate in their heart. Not only do they not commit adultery, they do not lust in their hearts. Not only do they not, and fill in the blank, whatever law you want to do, take it to the highest spiritual level in the heart of hearts, that's the victory that we have. Notice it might be fulfilled in us. Notice we're not actually doing it. Notice it's something that's being fulfilled in us, not by us. You see that? Look at every little word of Scripture. Dig it out. Think about it. Think about what Paul is saying. He's saying this is something that someone else is fulfilling in you, not you at all. Not by you, in you. It's a world of difference. I tried to fulfill law for a lot of years. But now I got somebody else doing it for me. That's that's a better deal, isn't it? Better deal. In fact, it's the only deal because I never did it in all the years I tried. Never did it. I'd smile and have a little hate right into my heart. I just wanted to kill somebody, but I'd smile. Outwardly, I look like a fine, upstanding Christian. In inwardly, man, it was awful. But now I got somebody else doing it for me. Fulfilling it in me. Notice verse 5. For those who live according. The King James says after. For the, now this is your choice. This is, this is where the abiding comes in. Remember the abiding this morning? For those who live according to the flesh. And it's very possible for a Christian to live after according in relation to the flesh. Every one of us has got it. Every one of us will always have it until we get a new body. Okay? And by the way, it's a law of sin and death. Some people ask the preacher, well, how do you, why do you, pre- how do you, how do you know what goes on in my house? Because it goes on in my house. <laughs> you think I don't struggle with the very same things you struggle with. Man, you must have been listening. No, I just listen to myself. I know what to preach because I got one of those hearts just like you. I know. We all got it. So if we all got it, you know you can live according to that. Everybody knows how to live according to the flesh. We've been that's that's the natural default, isn't it? Notice for those who live, that's your choice. You get to choose how you live. You get to choose the that's that's your choice. For those who live according to the flesh, 
This is what they do. They set their minds on the things of the flesh. Well, what are the things of the flesh? Well, it starts with me. It's, it starts with self. And whatever self makes self happy, whatever promotes me, you know. You see how translated over into the Christian faith these days, Christianity is just all about my blessing and me and, and how happy I am and all this stuff. I've often wanted to transport certain groups of Christians back to the first century. I won't say their name, Joe Olstein's group. It's like a twilight zone. You ever have those twilight zones where they transplant somebody back? I remember one where they had this cowboy movie star who was real arrogant and had to have his own way. And he was just hard to get along with on the set. And all of a sudden, twilight zone transported them back to the real Old West and into the old saloon. And uh, actually, Billy the Kid was there and a bunch of old ones. And, and they kind of surrounded him and said, you know, you're depicting us wrong on those movies. And they kind of jacked him up a little bit. I sure would like to transport some of those guys back and, and just let them sit in a tent with Paul when he was all busted up. You know, when he didn't have enough to eat, when he struggled from place to place, when he, when he struggled with that. I, those who preach about the whole, I'm getting on on tangent, forgive me, but those who preach about all this healing stuff, I'd like to, I'd like to have them watch Paul's eyes run with mucus because of a disease that God was not taking away because he said, my grace is sufficient for you. See? So do we mind the things? Are we after the things? Is our whole focus is what's going to really promote us? Or is it about him? So, so according to things of the flesh, notice it goes on. For those who live according to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, According to him, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The mind is the most powerful weapon you've got, most powerful muscle you've got. What you choose to think on, now it isn't all things. I want you to know that. Because it's after the Spirit, and then you think. So I know sometimes we get into theology where, you know, if you think it, you know, oh, don't think that. Like the mind's got some kind of power of its own. It does not. But if it's after the Spirit, and you're thinking about the things of the Lord, that affects the way you think. And the things you love, and the things you care about. The places you go or you don't go. The time you spent doing this or doing that. See? And only you know that. Only I know that. What's your mind set on? Things of the Spirit, set on things of the Spirit. Verse 6, for to set, this is for Christians. This is not lost people. This is in a, this is in a chapter about victory in the Spirit of God. And it's a warning there in verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. There's no future in it. It's a withered vine. You dry up and die. You can die with the Spirit of God in you, not setting your mind on those things. Focused on problems, focused on people, focused on self. Just fill in the blank. It'll kill you every time. You think there's life in that bowl of sherbet, and there's nothing there. You eat it, and you just get all sweeted out and get a headache. That's all there is to it. 
It's death. Notice, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind, it's like a clock. It's, it's like something you do. To set the mind on the things of the Spirit, notice what it says, is life and peace. Isn't that beautiful? 